You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. First things first, Merry Christmas, everyone. And I hope all your wishes come true. I wanted to tell you about a snippet of wisdom I found on Instagram. Now, I wish I could say I found this reading philosophy or rereading even philosophy. Oh yes, I was just rereading Michel de Montaigne, the French philosopher, or something like that. But better than that is something I found that was cribbed from someone who cribbed it from someone, a Xerox of a Xerox, and it started on a pavement somewhere in chalk. And it said this, I thought 2020 would be the year I got everything I wanted. I'm going to just take a time out here and say, why? Why did you think that? You're probably very young. Okay, back to the quote. Now I know 2020 is the year I appreciate everything I have. I think that's pretty good, children. I would amend that by saying that 2020 was a difficult and oppressive year for all of us all over the world, and we are almost through it. And grateful that we're still here and beyond grateful that the various COVID vaccines are beginning to be deployed and distributed around the world. What I want for the holidays, I just cannot have. And that would be to spend time in the flesh, nose to nose, cheek to cheek with my exhibits who I miss like crazy, but they are staying safe and keeping me safe by staying away from me. However, in the meantime, we just became parents to a puppy dog you might have just heard, an eight-week-old cavapoo named Sheila. So she is my current headline. I forgot what it was like to be the parent of a newborn, one who can't even wear diapers, and her bathroom habits keep me focused on her for now. I can barely look away lest she have a little accident, but I'm stealing time away from her now to tell you about this podcast. Some weeks ago, I had the privilege of interviewing Joyce Carol Oates for the Miami Book Fair to discuss her recent novel, Night, Sleep, Death, the Stars. Having never met her before, this grand dame of American letters, and being mindful of the audience who was watching our Zoom presentation, I could not retrofit it into a typical Five Things podcast. But you've read Joyce Carol Oates, or you know of her, or you think you know her, and you probably know that she is famously prodigious. People joke about having read a book in the time it took Joyce Carol Oates to write one or two. She has written at least 58 novels so far. There are more in the publishing pipeline. She writes poetry, novellas, essays, and she teaches. I found her ideas about fiction both illuminating and very modern. If this kind of talk floats your boat too, I think you'll enjoy our conversation. And yes, if you would prefer to watch it, you can do so at the link, which we have posted on my website, lisabernbach.com. So you'll only get my five things that made life better this week, but this is the only week that's going to happen. And it's Christmas. You're, you're busy. Okay, number one. I'm loving some podcasts I've listened to. Traveling to Poughkeepsie where the wonderful dog breeders live, we listen to Smartless. It's a funny and messy conversation among co-hosts Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes, and Will Arnett, Hollywood actors, TV mostly actors, 
and friends, and they have a guest. The banter between the three hosts reminded me of my high school classmates who are still close friends to this day. It was funny. It was dirty. It was immature. We That's all good. That's a compliment. We listened to their interview with the marvelous Maya Rudolph. She was in no way intimidated by them. She was able to meet them where they were. I've also listened to Nice White Parents. That's a totally different thing. It's a fascinating investigation about public school brought to you by the New York Times. Number two, chocolate covered almonds. My fella loves dark chocolate ones as do most cosmopolites I know. If you're sophisticated, you like dark chocolate. Me, I like milk chocolate. And I don't know why, but these chocolate-covered almonds seem to speak to me in the winter. In the summer, I'm, I'm not doing that. Number three, the joy that a new puppy spreads to people everywhere. It's kind of the trickle-down effect, much like having a baby in a stroller. People can see a beacon of simple joy. It gives people the chance to coo and to ask you questions, and suddenly that stern person down the street is kind of goofy around a puppy, and people forget their troubles. It's optimism. It's something just positive and and nice. It's not political. It's not partisan. It's just nice. Number four, Dr. Anthony Fauci. I couldn't be happier or more stoked that America's doctor, who has done so much research about both HIV, AIDS, and COVID-19, has been re-upped by the incoming administration. How terribly he was demeaned by Trump and his people and disrespected. When he told the little boy yesterday that he personally administered a COVID vaccine to Santa Claus up in the North Pole in advance of Christmas Eve so he could safely deliver packages to all the children, I swear it made me believe in Santa Claus. And number five, Stella Artois Cidre or Cider. Have you tried this drink? It's low alcohol content for 0.5% and not too sweet flavor make this hard cider a nice late afternoon drink in the winter. Does it taste like apples-ish? But I think it's so refreshing. Thank you, Anthony, for introducing this hard cider to us. I'm sure we could have it and enjoy it in the summer, but for me, it's a winter drink for staying cozy at home. And I mean, where else are you gonna go, right? So I like it. Coming up, Joyce Carol Oates at the Miami Book Fair. Don't go away. Hi, I'm Lisa Bernbach, and I have the privilege of interviewing Joyce Carol Oates today. And Joyce Carol Oates, I'm thrilled to meet you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I just read your new novel, and I guess newest novel, more to come, called Night, Sleep, Death, and the Stars. I'm going to put the cover up for the audience. I know you know what it looks like. I swooned in this book. Once I became involved in your characters, I became maybe too involved in your characters. This is a story about a family and uh, like most families, there are lots of secrets and there's an undoing. And I identified with every single person in the book, the good ones, the bad ones. 
I thought, oh, no, I'm Beverly. Then I thought, but really, am I not a Virgil? You know, (laughs) um, how when you create a family as distinctive and as fully envisioned as the McLarens, do you become everybody too? Oh, yes, I think I do. I do really. I immerse myself in the characters. I'm much more Jessalyn than I am anyone else in the, in the novel, but I'm sympathetic with all the characters. And as you said, there are some characters who are really not quite as nice as the others, but they're kind of deluded and you know self-deluded. And I see how I will bring them through that delusion. You solve things for them that I feel they couldn't solve for themselves. This is a family that needed you. This is a family that needed therapy and a squint-eyed cat and a couple of outsiders really solved some of the problems in this family. The, The thing that's so interesting to me about this novel is you would never connect any of the five kids to one another if you met them separately. Well, that, that is a good point, and I think that's true of some, of some families also. Well, what, what is unusual for me in, in this novel, most of it's actually set right in my, in my house. Right. And there are a number of scenes when Jessalyn, the widow, is in her bedroom, and she's reading late at night. And basically, that's this room that I'm in. Wow. Because of the phenomenon of the, the virus and Zoom, ordinarily, I would be in Miami, you know, among, right. among people. But here, like Jessalyn, like the widow, I'm right here in the very room, and I'm in the house. That's the setting for the novel. So that's that's so bizarre. Well, it felt like the house was a house you knew very, very well. And the other thing is that the fact of the patriarch dying what made this so interesting too was it's set in 2010 to 11 and 12 or 12 actually and although there's no mention of who the president is or what's going on in the world it feels very contemporary and the five children are so still dependent on their parents and so affected by their parents even if they don't see them much and what i thought was so fascinating about that is this pandemic has brought so many adult children home to their parents. And what is growing up anyway? Yes, I find that the family life and the life, the life that is sort of a little bit below consciousness, but the emotional, unconscious life, this visceral connection that we have with other people, I think that has really come much more to the surface during the pandemic, that we are usually so distracted by complications. We might be traveling, we're commuting to work, but with the pandemic, we're really like people meditating. It's like we're in a religious retreat or a sanctuary. <laughs> I think profound things. We don't have as much trivia in our lives. That's true. That's true. And I find people talk about the TV shows they're binge watching with an urgency. It's not really entertainment. It's diversion. It's something that's answering a, 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 a deep hunger. As anyone knows who's had a loss in the family... When you lose a loved one, you enter sort of that valley of the shadow of death, you know, and you you sort of enter another space. And many of the preoccupations of ordinary life seem very banal and inconsequential. So in this world, a much more primitive and elemental feelings. 
And I think for many people, you really just want to to hug the nearest person or establish your love a little more strongly because you realize suddenly everyone's mortal. If you live long enough, you're going to lose literally everyone. That gives us such a sense of urgency. And in my novel, I'm really exploring that, that urgency. But of course, when I wrote the novel, it was, bef- it was may- way before the pandemic. And actually before Trump. Trump is not in the novel. No, no. I can't believe you actually said his name out loud. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that soon. Um, you coin a term in the novel, widow think. And I wrote it down because that sense of suspension in another realm. Jessalyn is widowed. She had a beautiful marriage, a long marriage. The death of her husband came about horribly. It's a shock. And she engages in magical thinking for a long time and wandering her large house in a a daze, really. And it felt based on the widows I know, as real. And even though there's something a little supernatural about it, Joyce, it felt absolutely like a empirically known thing about someone who has lost their partner of many years. Yes, well, that was my own experience. And then having it in this room where Jessalyn is reading her her husband's books, she's trying to read some of the things that her husband was trying to read. And I think it's a bittersweet sort of experience. And there is some comedy to it, like as a gentle humor and irony, you start to remember the person you've lost. And if he had any flaws at all, if there's anything exasperating about him, now they become very endearing. You sort of love people for these exasperating things. And so the things that Whitey did or didn't do, when remembering him now that she's lost him, it just makes her love him all the more. Absolutely. Well, he's he definitely, dead or alive, he is a huge presence in the novel and in the life of this family. I mean, he was, he made so many decisions that affected everyone and really kept Jessalyn a little bit on a pedestal so she didn't have to make those decisions. Yes. And I was exploring that, you know, the aftermath where a woman can be so well loved and protected by her husband that she's not very capable, you know, to live alone and do things alone. There are certain things that you learn to do as a widow that you're shielded, (laughs) you're shielded from by the husband. Mm -hmm. And so, as I say, it's a sort of bittersweet thing. But I felt the way about my parents also. Suddenly they were gone from the world. And it was so extraordinary that, you know, you never see these people again. Because in a family, there are many things about that people do that are, that are eccentric or peculiar, you know, exasperating. And all these qualities, once the person's gone, they become so precious. That's something I didn't know when I was a younger person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this part of upper, upper, upper New York State. I, of course, went to a map to look at where this family was situated. I honestly can say as a grown-up person that I didn't realize that Rochester was closer to Canada than it was to Buffalo or New York City. So I'm a geographic idiot. But you were raised in upstate New York. Is that the Hammond vicinity, your your mm. neck of the woods? Yes, it's a fictitious name. Yes, a, I yes. A city, a, a smaller than Buffalo. Right. But it's in that area. 
In between Buffalo and Rochester, probably more the size of um, Troy or one of these other cities. Mm -hmm. Buffalo used to be fairly large in Rochester too, but I think they've lost population lately. So it's kind of a mythical place. It's a snow belt and it's very hilly and beautiful landscape, Western New York. I'd love to know when you plot out a novel and by the count, I have Night, Sleep, Death, The Stars may have been your 56th novel. I saw you once on TV when someone said, is this your first book, Joyce? And it was probably your 80th. And I don't want to get the number wrong. But in let's say, let's say 56, 57 novels. Are you a writer who does cards on the wall? Do you write outlines first? Does it start with the people? Does it start with the, what if the patriarch died and left kids? Does it start with a song, something you've seen or heard? Well, it depends entirely upon the novel. Obviously, because I am a widow and I did lose my husband. And subsequently, I remarried, which is one of the themes of this of this mm-hmm. novel. But then my, my second husband passed away also. So I've had a lot of experience in loss. But because of, because I'm writing something so intimate in my life, but it is conjoined with themes of social unrest and social justice, because you know, some things in the novel are right out of Black Lives Matter, which mm-hmm. is so co- incredible. I didn't have to make up the situation for this novel because it was my own very intimate experience. Basically, I wanted to explore how does a person who's who's lost what she thinks is everything. How do you find a way to get up in the morning, to go into your life, to assume your life? How do you live? Like almost how do you draw breath? Is there some way that that you can find to continue with your life? And I think widows always ask themselves that. And some widows have family who need them. They may have children or grandchildren. So they don't have to ask that question. They immerse themselves in the immediacy. But if Mm -hmm. you live alone, husband was your only real family, then you're literally alone. You have to find some identity. So I actually found, I thought I found a way for Jessalyn that was honest and authentic. She sort of involuntarily falls in love again, maybe not the way she loved her first husband, and that happens. And I think I, I really wanted to explore that. But with another novel, I might do some research. When I the Book of American Martyrs, which is about the abortion, the anti-abortion and pro-choice movements in mm-hmm. America. I did a lot of research for that. I should say, and you uh, talked about Black Lives Matter, there is a huge theme here of police brutality, believe it or not, in a domestic novel. I mean, there's kind of a berm underneath this family's property of that and underneath the book. And it's I'll tell you, I had a physical image of Jessalyn, very slim like you, very pale like you. And do you remember the Babar books about Babar the elephant? Did you ever read those? And there was a beautiful lady who took a great interest in the elephant. I think she was known as the lady or, Uh and, and she was a tiny little (laughs) triangle next to the elephants. And that was to me, Jessalyn, fragile and understandably so and understandably feeling 
that she wanted to join her husband and and die. And yet she got involved in a kind of Black Lives Matter anti-police brutality meeting in the bad part of town. Life changer, total life changer for her. Yes. And I, and I when did you write when did you write the novel? I wrote the novel before My Life as a Rat. So My Life as a Rat wow. came out last year, but I had written this before. Wow. My publisher and I were alternating long novels. This is a long family novel, and A Book of American Martyrs was a long novel. In the middle, we published the novel Life as a Rat, which is focused on one person. It's just like one person, whereas these other novels have quite a, a large cast of characters. Mm. And the novels, I would think, keep you company living alone, as yeah. you do. That's true of writers generally, writers and poets. I think that's right. The writing becomes your solace. It's like another world to live in. George Santayana said religion is another. But Mm. the the imagination is also. Truly, when you write, do you feel changed by each experience, whether it's a poem or a collection of poems or short stories or a novel? Yes, I think that's very true. The human brain is such that everything we do or say or experience affects the brain. So whether it's physical exercise, which is very good for the brain, or the exercise of of trying to solve the problem of organizing a chapter and doing revisions and and sometimes moving things around, you know, cutting and, and pacing with the computer, those things that we do are problem solving. And that's very therapeutic. It's very good for us. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. It is. Keeps the brain plastic, as they say. Yeah. You taught creative writing at Princeton for many years and were a beloved and prized teacher to get to work with. I know many people who've studied with you. I'm envious of each of them. Oh, really? well, I'm still teaching at Princeton, actually. I'm just, I'm part-time. Part-time, right. I retired from being a full-time faculty member, but I'm teaching part-time at Princeton and also at NYU. Oh, at NYU as well. And on the West Coast any longer? No, no. But I, um, I read an article written by your colleague, Elaine Showalter, about your official retirement yes. party. And she said... Retirement as the Roger S. Berlin Distinguished Professor of the Humanities is a technicality. Retirement from teaching and writing is an impossibility. Yes. I love that. Yes, Elaine's so eloquent and she's often very funny. Teaching creative writing, I'd love to know. I studied at Brown with Michael Harper, the poet. Oh, yes. Um, Yes. He was a wonderful teacher, but you're getting these writers at such an impressionable moment in their lives. They're 18, they're 20. They are trying out identities still. When I went to college, the poems were so awful. They were all about the vulva and it was just gross. I mean, I couldn't stand it. Not that I have anything against anybody's vulva, but you know, branch out. <laughs> um, it was just, it, yes, yes. Everybody was influenced by Plath and Sexton then. 
But you have worked with so many interesting writers who have so many interesting styles and do things all differently, whether it's Walter Kern or Jonathan Safran for or whomever else. I think, I mean, it's it's yeah, a crazy. Yeah. How, how do you go about sort of figuring out who they are and helping them in their own dialect? Well, workshops are comprised of about 10 students. So I'm not looking at any one student who is 18 or 19 years old. Basically, they're all young people and they're all young writers. So somebody will emerge maybe and keep on writing and and keep on working and working hard and then become published. But most of the students at Princeton, uh, they're undergraduates. So they're taking courses in the arts. They could be taking a course in music or actually in pottery or acting and and creative writing or painting. So it isn't like a professional situation where there would be somebody already quite defined as an artist. And yet many of them have gone on to professional success. Oh, yes, but probably just a very small percentage. So when when we look back, we have to be careful that we don't have a kind of retrospective revision, because usually in a class, there'll be maybe everybody's talented, but one person works hard because Jonathan Safran Foer was a brilliant student as an undergraduate, but he also, after graduation, worked very hard. And he still works very hard. So that's the difference. You may have 10 talented students, but only one or two may be really willing to work as hard as it's required. Of course, the life of a writer has been misunderstood forever. And I'm sure this isn't the case with you, but with people at my level, people say all the time, you want to talk on the phone? No, I'm writing. Yeah, just talk on the phone, just 10 minutes. I mean, there's a sense that you're always doing it. Even if you're not actually writing, that thinking is all about the writing. Well, that's so true. But I think particularly women are considered that we're just available to people maybe a little more. Like Mm -hmm. nobody called up Philip Roth and said, oh, you can call. It's not (laughs) important writing. They might say that to a woman. No. Yes. Yes, I agree. And and of course, anything uh, up until the pandemic, anything you did at home was less serious than something you yeah. went to do in an office. And how many times have I read that Gay Talese put on a full suit and tie, mm-hmm. a three-piece suit and tie, and went downstairs to his office and I could know. only work? Yeah. I so mean, interesting. Yeah. Well, John Updike, as soon as he could, when he was a young husband and father, he got an office away from his house and and the children, he probably wouldn't have needed that, but he wanted an office in a little, they were in some little village, I think. I can't remember where they were. This is the first first wife. Mm -hmm. And that seems important to leave the house and go to some other place. Well, how do you feel since you work at home? Do you like writing in your bedroom? Do you like writing in another room? Well, I have have a a special routine. Well, my special requirements for a study would be some place where I can look out the window. I spend a lot of time actually looking at the sky. I'm looking at the window right now. I need to be, I need to have a window in front of me. Now, some writers do not want a window. My friend Russell Banks, he looks at a wall. Mm-hmm. But I, I really wouldn't want to do that. I think it's, it's somehow I need to have the sense of airiness. And I need to go for a walk or running to help me with my writing. I really need to have physical exercise every day. 
and computer, notebooks, handwriting. How do you start? I like to start by running and walking and spending a lot of time outdoors and thinking. I'm not necessarily thinking of anything so specific, but sort of thinking about the overall trajectory of a novel. Or I might be thinking of the problem of uh, organizing a chapter. Then when I come back on the notes in, in handwriting, I just have a lot of notes on my desk. And then I will start to work on scenes, just, you know, little descriptions or passages on the mm-hmm. laptop. But it's, a, it's like a, a slow process. Writing is not anything that you're going to do swiftly. Right. It's going to piecemeal. And the situation that I'm in now, I'm, I'm in the last third of a novel. It's almost like I'm doing um, like a quilt or a wall hanging where I'm doing a mosaic. I work on something, then I go back and work on something 70 pages back. First chapter and work on that a little bit. And then I go to the latest chapter and I work on that. So it's all very meditative. And that quilt, as you describe it very well, is that one novel at a time, or do you have different projects uh, no, simmering no. at different times, one no, at a I time? A long novel like Night's Sleep, Death of Stars is totally immersing. Yeah. I have to do that one thing. I might take time off between chapters to write a book review. Uh-huh. Something short, yeah. Yeah, something yeah. short. I wanted to talk to you about language. The language of today and 2010 is much more coarse than the language when you wrote them, for example. I mean, it's interesting how language changes and evolves. And, you know, because we have a shortened attention span as adults with gadgets going all over the place and Mm -hmm. we hear little beeps and we think we're immediately, they need me for surgery and so on. People also say things that are shortcuts and are expressive, but not expressive. For example, people say the word fuck in your novel because that's what people say. But is it surprising to you, Joyce Carol Oates, to be writing that work? I mean, could you imagine at a time in the 60s, -hmm. let's say, that that word would be coming out of almost every character's mouth when they are feeling frustrated? Well, I guess that's an interesting question. Probably it all evolves. And there are some words like hell and damn that had seemed very forceful. Right. In the 1950s, and then that sort of evolves and those become much more mild. I think there's a whole branch of linguistics that studies um, pejorative and you know negative uh, taboo words. Mm-hmm. It is like an evolving or revolving thing because there are some words associated with race now that were once considered dec- decorous and proper. Right, right. Now, if you utter those words, which were never really derogatory, you might be accused of being a racist. Even though those words were used by black, by black writers when they were writing, we, we, we don't have access to the past that easily. When we're writing, we have to be writing in our own time. So if we use a word that was used by Hemingway casually, it means something different than it meant at that time. It means something really awful, you know, because it's, been a, it's become a taboo. Once it was not a taboo 
for Faulkner or Hemingway or, or virtually anybody to use words that now are racial slurs. That's right. And even I have I have three children. I refer to them as my science experiments. And <laughs> they always school me if I've made a pronoun mistake because their universe is extraordinarily sensitive to that, as you know from teaching universities. Yes. And yes. if someone they know that I know was a he or a she and now a they and mm. I make a casual casual not an intentional slip because I remember that person when I get such hell oh I swore again I get such hell from them it's incredible mm. and there is a touchiness and you know remember in college classes when people would raise their hand and say uh, Professor Oates, I think. And then suddenly, 70s, 80s, I feel offended. Can you talk uh -huh. a little bit about that and how that has changed what you do and the world that you see? Well, I try to be sensitive to the students who are actually in my classes. Right. So I think we're more aware of the, the personal histories of people. And so I would not want to be teaching something where a very pejorative word is used to describe right. a human Theme, you know? Of course not, yeah. And that's true of, of um, say, in feminists also. We don't want to just sit down and read casually a text in which there are horrible things said about women or parts of our body are kind of mocked, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not that I would take those books out of the library, and I would definitely, you know, I'd recommend people read Faulkner or Hemingway or D.H. Lawrence. But I don't necessarily have to teach those texts to a certain group of students. So I think always we've, we've, we've always been a sensitive and aware of that. There's almost nothing that anybody teaches except some classic work that you have to teach one thing. You know, like even with Shakespeare, there are a number of tragedies. Mm -hmm. You don't have to teach Othello. You could teach Macbeth. You know, you don't have to teach Macbeth. You can teach Hamlet. So right. move around. There are, there's at least one wonderful story by Eudora Welty. It's called, What is the Voice Coming From? Now, that is a brilliant story, and I've taught it for many, many years. But right now, that would be an insensitive story to teach because there's a racial slur in it that's used repeatedly. So it, it just strikes the ear harshly, um, not just black readers, but readers. And, you know, we've educated to be sensitive about things. And so, too, with anti-Semitism. You know, mm -hmm. it used to be you could read some text by, again, I mentioned Hemingway or Edith Wharton, and it would glide right by you. They're saying something derogatory about a Jew. But now you sort of stop dead. Like, you, you stop right at that word, and it, it destroys the reading experience. So all I can say is I, I fervently believe, along with William James, that the world that we live in is constantly changing, and the taboo goes in and out, in and out. Some things are taboo subjects now, but they weren't. But they will be right. again in the future. They might not be again. So we have to live in our own time. That's right. I think of when the writers that I read growing up were considered important and vital. And 10 years later, they were called dead white men. 
you can still learn a great deal in terms of structure and 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 language and plot from the dead white men, but they're not the be all end all anymore. But you're right. You do need to say to your students, if they are serious literary students or want to be writers, you can read this, but understand why I don't assign it. You'll get a lot from it, but it's also, it could be offensive. And I'm just warning you that it might be. Well, also nothing is Dispensable. As I was saying, especially contemporary or 20th century literature, there's such a multiplicity. You know, if you're if you're teaching the Canterbury Tales, there's the Canterbury Tales. You know, there's you, you can't not teach the Canterbury Tales if that's your your era, that's your subject. But right now, there are let's say there are 300 good novels in, in mm-hmm. American literature. You could teach one or the other, and they all exemplify something. Is there a kind of writing that your students are drawn to right now, or a writer who is, to your surprise, incredibly popular? Well, I don't know how to answer that because I have such a wide range of students. At Princeton, I have undergraduates. Right. Some of them are only freshmen. Ah. Which, I mean, they're really young. And then at NYU, I have, I have older students. They're all graduate writers, and one of them, or I mean, one or two of them might be well into their 30s, or somebody could be 40 at NYU. It's, mm-hmm. and so obviously, the wide range of experience is, is just so different. The students tend to be pleasantly surprised if I spend some time on a Hemingway story. Mm. For many people, especially women, he's been written off. He's been canceled. Yeah, yeah I'll pick up a story by Hemingway that isn't isn't offensive, and it's like three pages. It's a brilliant story. So one of my young woman writers, she said, "You know, I would never have thought there was so much in the story. I like him much better now." She said, "Oh, interesting." Because you can find something that actually isn't offensive. What about the early 20th century writers who seem to be not unpopular, just sort of forgotten? The Theodore Dreisers and uh, Sinclair Lewis and and wonderful, wonderful writers whose books aren't really taught anymore. What happens to them? Do they come back? I mean, they're still good. They're still wonderfully good. It would depend upon what the subject is. If it's uh, early 20th century American literature, they certainly would be taught. But there's no reason for a young writer to read Dreiser or Sinclair Lewis today because they'd be better off reading David Foster Wallace, let's say, because no, no, nobody is really going to write like Dreiser again. Mm. And nobody's probably going to write like Sinclair Lewis. Tom Wolfe wrote a bit like Sinclair Lewis, you know, very, very over the top, mm-hmm. heavy satire. Oh, uh, you wouldn't really need to be reading these people. Interesting. It's better, it's better for writers to read their their contemporaries are writers who are a little bit older than they are. So my students are are reading partly they read things that I assign them. Right. For instance, I assign them a story by Jonathan Safran Four, who's just a, in, ten years older than they are, maybe. You know. So they're reading something very contemporary, which is also very. That's so interesting. Also, I noticed that Wallace Stegner and that novel Stoner are both 
sort of trendy now, speaking of the older writers. John Williams, a stoner. John Williams, yeah. That's not a novel that women like a lot because it's very, very misogynist in the portrait of a woman. I I never liked stoner the way other people do, but I I don't either. Yeah. It wasn't because it's misogynist. I didn't didn't think it was that well written. I don't think it's anything special. I'd much rather read Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's Lolita is one of those novels that we mm-hmm. could have a few minutes ago. It might not even be published today. I totally agree. Well, it's interesting then, the shelf life of some of the books that I grew up with and that you grew up with would not be taught in college at this point. No, but they'll come back and they're not going away. If you're a serious writer, you'll be reading these things. You'll read anything. You read Nebuchadnezzar or you're John Updike or or John Cheever, or Norman Mailer. Mm. Basically, you just read anything. Uh, we're talking about a very narrow prism of people who are politically mm. correct. They're very aware of their teaching. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean one can't read these things. Right. One of my favorite of writers is B.H. Lawrence. It would be difficult for me to teach some of his novels today because they would seem to be offensive. Mm-hmm. I'm a formalist, and I'm interested in language and form. I'm not so much interested in trends, in fashion, you know, uh, what you think right this year or last year or the year to come, because I'm much more interested in the art of literature, which is essentially timeless. And that brings us back to Night, Sleep, Death, and the Stars, because it is a book that I believe is both grounded in the time at which it's set and also quite universal. And I can't tell you how much I enjoyed reading it. But one night I was breathless through three, four in the morning. I just, you know, once you get connected to a, a novel, and that's why I love, I love fiction so much. You're transported and you transported me, Joyce, in such a great way. So you went to the Galapagos in your imagination. I did. I did. I even got married in, down in Ecuador. Oh, my goodness. Really? No, no. In your book, oh, I, I did. did. No, no, no. Oh, I, I was all in. I was all in. One last thing, because I know that the Miami Book Fair is happening in a few weeks, but we are actually talking on the eve of the election. And I've been following you on Twitter for probably the 10 years I've been on Twitter, whatever it's been. And you are a very, well, first of all, I agree with you and your anti-Trump position 100%. But you have become such a beacon to people who feel the same way. Does it surprise you that you have this uh, following on Twitter that is all about politics? Oh, I'm not really aware of that. I know that I have like 200,000 followers or, or so. But I think you a lot of them, I, I put up videos of, and pictures of my cats, too. Yes, a lot of cat content. But everyone I follow on Twitter is part of the resistance. And the resistance began in 2016. Um, the resistance on Twitter is very strong and variegated, often burning. And, of course, I have the literary interest, too. Yes, you do. So it's really politics, resistance, cat content, cats. and literature. I'm sure everybody watching today 
is a follower, but in case you want to join 210,000 people who have it right, you should all follow Joyce Carol Oates on Twitter. She is a treat. You know, baby content. There's a lot of nice goat content on Twitter. <laughs> it's it's an antidote to the grave uh, misery that surrounds us or did these last four years. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I have enjoyed meeting you digitally. I look forward to meeting you in person someday. And you're Joyce Carol Oates, my God. Well, I think I'll say goodbye because I get a little burnt out on Zoom and you probably do too. I do, I do. So lovely to meet you. And we'll do this again sometime. And again, this will take you away to another place in time and give you a lot to chew on. Thank Thank you, you, Joyce. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.